Hi, I'm Keith Deason, and this is From the Ground Up, a podcast about how we make what we make, the materials, the tools, and the stories behind the things we build. Los Angeles, 1942. Designers Charles and Ray Eames stand in their apartment, though by this point it had become more of a workshop than home, staring impatiently at their creation. It is a creation that creates creations, really, a hideous machine that helped pave the way towards creating some of the most stunningly beautiful pieces of craftsmanship that almost anyone had ever seen. They called it the Kazam Machine. The contraption is comprised mainly of 2x4 lumber, fashioned into a hinged cage that contains interchangeable plaster molds, used to shape layers of glued veneer into complex shapes and an inflatable membrane to squeeze them into place. Electrical coils run throughout the machine, heating the thin layers of wood and resin to a curing point before they are removed. It is an ugly beast, and a hungry one. The coils require so much more electrical current than their home circuit could provide that Charles had to scale an electrical pole outside their building, shielded cable in hand, to siphon the required energy directly from a transformer. Much to his and Ray's relief, Charles survived, and the machine was brought to life. The following months brought forth all sorts of varied experiments of bending and shaping their homemade plywood, and in the midst of it all, an opportunity arose. A friend, Dr. Wendell Scott, who was stationed in nearby San Diego, decided to pay the Eameses a visit. The war effort was in full swing in America, and Scott told the couple about a problem the medical corps had been struggling with. It seems the metal leg braces used to stabilize the limbs of wounded servicemen were doing as much, if not more, harm than good. Besides being uncomfortable, they also conducted vibrations in such a way as to exacerbate the soldiers' injuries. The couple decided to put their design skills, and everything they had learned about shaping plywood, to the task of creating a replacement for the faulty equipment. They designed a complex, concave shape that conformed to the natural curves of a man's leg. Charles's leg, to be exact. The plaster mold for the machine was made from his own limb, painfully tearing out his leg hair in the process. Charles rubbed his sore, itchy calf as he checked the time. Six hours had passed since he closed up the machine, inflated the membrane using a nearby bicycle pump, and turned on the coils. It was time to see if it worked. What emerged, after being cut to final shape, sanded and finished, was a marvel of design and function. A beautiful piece of curved, laminated plywood with symmetrical cutouts that pulled double duty, both to relieve the stress of the bent wood, preventing cracking, and also to provide medics with a place to secure the splint to the leg with strapping. The product was lightweight, inexpensive, and could be mass-produced. They partnered with a manufacturing firm, Evans Products, and sold over 150,000 of the splints to the military. They learned the equipment and processes necessary for mass production, and when needed, invented their own tools and techniques. More government contracts rolled in, and their department at Evans grew to include the Eames office and the molded plywood division. In 1945, as the war drew to a close, the couple set their sights back on their original goals of consumer design. Their experience and resources were now a match for their creativity and ambition. They were poised to become two of the most influential designers of all time thanks to their ingenuity, innovation, and the seemingly endless opportunities provided 
by their mastery of plywood. Now, Charles and Ray Eames didn't invent the concept of layering wooden veneers together to form panels. People as far back as the ancient Egyptians and Chinese had been experimenting with the same process. In the early modern era, the 17th and 18th centuries, artisans were laminating decorative hardwoods together to form more stable cabinetry and desktops. The first patent for plywood was issued in New York City in 1856 to John K. Mayo. In a later reissue of the patent, his design is described as, quote, cementing or otherwise fastening together a number of these scales of sheets, with the grain of the successive pieces or some of them running crosswise or diversely from that of the others. Basically, it described how the layers of plywood, bonded by glue, are lain so the grain of the veneers runs perpendicular to that of the layers above and below it, lending incredible strength and stability. Despite having the patent for what we now know as modern plywood, Mayo never capitalized on this invention, but it wouldn't be long before someone else did. Portland in 1900 was a young city. Founded 55 years prior, it had grown into quite the economic powerhouse. It was the northwest terminus for all major railroads, and the trains brought Portland's major export, wheat and flour, to cities throughout the nation. However, due to a long national financial depression, local business owners were growing restless, nervous about their city's future. Local merchants formed the Board of Trade and put together a commission to put on, as quoted, some sort of fair. And five years later, a fair is what they had. The Oregon Historical Society had decided on the theme. The Lewis and Clark Centennial and American Pacific Exposition and Oriental Fair which was a mouthful, but shone bright with the glamour of history and the continued promise of economic strength. The site chosen for the fair, a small, swampy lake near town surrounded by large pastures and groves of trees, had been built into quite a spectacular venue. Loads of smallish buildings styled after those of the Spanish Renaissance sprung up nearly everywhere, their red roofs and cupolas, domes and arches rising over the local greenery. Standing, in stark contrast to this town at a time, was the forestry building, which was, at the time, the largest log cabin ever constructed. The fairground bustled with exhibits from all over the world. Marble statues from Italy, moving picture shows, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, work by the famed painter Claude Monet, and more were all illuminated by the fair system of incandescent lighting, another fairly modern marvel. Also there, almost tucked away in a section reserved for local Portland businesses, was a booth for the Portland Manufacturing Company, a hometown business that specialized in making small wooden boxes. Nothing too exciting about that except that there were quite a number of people standing around the exhibit. It seems Gustav Carlson, a part owner and the plant manager, had the idea to laminate together a variety of Pacific Northwest softwood veneers into sheets. Using several men to paint the glue between the layers and house jacks to press them together, several large sheets have been made and laid out for display. The crowd was full of business owners, cabinet makers, door salesmen, trunk manufacturers, and Carlson was busy scribbling down orders from each and every one. The company had a hot product on their hands, and by 1907 they had automatic glue spreaders, 
specialized presses, and could produce 420 panels per day. Other industrious businessmen took notice, and by the 1920s, there were 17 plywood mills operating in the Pacific Northwest. Plywood's versatility and stability sparked a new wave of innovation in many industries. In the 1930s, the Depression brought about the need for affordable housing. Using the recent discovery of waterproof glues, the plywood industry showed off new techniques for constructing entire homes from sections, prefabricated and shipped to the build site. In 1936, they debuted a model home that could be built on site by only seven men in just 21 hours. Alongside the Eames's splints, furniture, cars, and even airplanes were constructed using formable, moldable plywood in the 1940s. Later, with advances in adhesives and bonding methods, entire boats could be made of plywood, saving months of labor. There were even do-it-yourself plywood kits for adventurous handy types who wanted to build their own small, recreational sailboat with very little hassle. It has sailed across oceans, carried passengers through early pneumatic subways, flown through the heavens, and helped heal the wounded. It's won wars, housed an unfortunate nation, carried our burdens, and propelled us into the future. These stories are just the beginning, so be sure to tune in to part two of this special series on the history of plywood, coming soon. From the Ground Up is an ongoing experiment. It is now and will always be available free of charge. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash All supporters have access to behind-the-scenes and bonus content, and the following patrons deserve a special thanks for going the extra mile to make this show possible. Jeff Shaw, Maker Geek, Johnny Builds, Vincent Ferrari, Make Build Modify, and Tony Rouleau. Until next time, this is Keith Decent saying, Later, makers.